This is the Hasidic Story Project with Barack Holman, podcasting from Jerusalem, Israel. This podcast is sponsored by listeners just like you. To become a supporter of this podcast, please go to HasidicStory.com. H-A-S-I-D-I-C Story.com. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. The Holy Aptor of Rabbi Avraham Yoshua Heschel had a son whose name was Yitzchak Meir. And one day, Yitzchak Meir says to his father, You know, Tati, I was thinking, we're so lucky to be living here in Poland. We have so many great Rebbe's and Sadikim, so many holy people to guide us in serving Hashem and to raise us up with their acts of chesed and their davening. But when I think about the Jews in Germany, there's no one there for them. There's no Rebbe's. There's no great Sadikim for them. How do they grow in their service of Hashem? And the Abderav looked at his son, and he says, Well, my son, Yitzchak Meir, very soon you're going to find out for yourself. Now, of course, the son of the Rebbe, he spent all of his time learning Torah, and nobody expected him to work. But even though he didn't work, he still had to eat. And so every Friday, his father sent him two rubles to pay for food and whatever expenses he had for the week. And the Friday after they had the conversation about the Jews in Germany, Yitzchak Meir was waiting for his two rubles to arrive, but they didn't come. And at first he said, oh, so it's not such a big deal. You know, my father, he's a Rebbe. He's busy dealing with so many people's problems. He probably forgot, and I still have a little bit left over from the previous weeks. And probably next Friday he'll send me double the portion. But the next Friday came, and no money came. And by the third Friday, when no money came from his father, Yitzchak Meir didn't know what to do. He didn't have any money to buy food. Now, the Abderav was such a great Rebbe, you didn't just walk in and say, hey, you forgot to send me money, even if you're his son. So Yitzchak Meir went to one of his friends, one of the fellow Hasidim of his father, and he said, I know it's a big favor to ask of you, but you know, my father sends me two rubles every week, and it's been three weeks since he sent me anything, and I need you to find out what's going on. Why isn't he sending me the money? And the Hasid said, listen, Yitzchak Meir, you know, we've been friends for many years, but I've never been alone with your holy father. And I'd be scared just to be with him by myself, yet alone ask him for money, even for you. But Yitzchak Meir kept telling his friend, "No, you gotta help me. You remember I helped you with this thing and that thing. You need to do me a favor as well. And so reluctantly, the friend agreed. He knocked on the Rebbe's door. And when the Heidegger, after Rav, opens the door, the Chassid, the friend of his son, Yitzchak Meir, he says, Rebbe, I'm really sorry to bother you. I know you're busy and you have many important matters to deal with, but your son Yitzchak Meir, and the Rebbe said, No, what's with my son? He said, Do you know the two rubles every week? And the Rebbe said, Yes, why? What's wrong? He said, Well, Rebbe, he doesn't understand why you stopped sending them to him. And the Abderav barely looked up from his safer that he was learning from. And he says, So Yitzchak Meir thinks I'm going to support him his whole life? Go back and tell my son. It's time he starts taking care of himself. And the Chassid was shocked at how his Rebbe was behaving. And he said, But Rebbe, everyone knows that your son just sits and learns Torah all day. He doesn't know anything about worldly affairs and making a living. And you expect him to just figure things out? And the Abderav said, yeah, it's time he learned. But I guess you're right. He doesn't have any experience. So I'll give him a little bit of advice. He left the room and came back with a few rubles. He gives it to the Chassi and says, please give this to my son. And tell him it's the last money that he's going to get from me. And then tell him to go to Italy and use these rubles to buy a srogim for Sukkot. 
between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, he should then go to Germany, where he can sell the Esrogim for a lot of money and live off the profit for the rest of the year. And so the Chassid ran back to Yitzchak Meir, and he gave him the money, and he gave him the advice, and Yitzchak Meir was besides himself. He didn't expect this, but not only that, he said to himself, if I'm in Germany between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I won't be with my father. What kind of davening will I have in Germany? Away from my father, the Rebbe. But he consoled himself. He said, well, if my father's right and I make enough profit to live off the whole year, I can hire a fast wagon to take me back and be back in time for Sukkot. And so Reb Meir went to Italy and bought the Esrogim. And then, as his father had told him, he went to Germany to Leipzig. And there the after Rav was exactly on the spot. Rabbi Yitzchak Meir sold his entire stock of Hisrogim for an unbelievable amount of money. And he was feeling quite confident and also quite rich. And he went to a special carriage and hired him to take him back right after Yom Kippur. Even though they would have to travel day and night, he believed that they could make it within four days. And then at least he would be with his father for the holiday of Sukkot. But before Yom Kippur, it started raining. And it rained all of Yom Kippur. And the next night, and the day after that, and the floods washed away most of the roads, and whatever was left were rivers of mud. And the driver told him, I'm really sorry, there's no way that we can travel in this weather. And Yitzchak Meir said, I'll pay you more. He said, I don't care what you pay me. There's no roads, there's no way for us to travel. We'll just get stuck in the mud. Forget it, I'm not doing it. And so, he had no choice but to wait. And it continued raining until the day before Sukkot. And then Yitzchak Meir knew there was absolutely no way that he was going to make it back to Apt in time for the holiday. And so, like it or not, he had no choice but to spend the first days of Sukkot in Germany. So the first night of the holiday, Yitzchak Meir, feeling really down and sorry for himself, he went to the local shul in Leipzig. And he finds a place in the last row and just sits there with his eyes closed, thinking about being in the holy court of his father, the Apter Rav. And he was so lost in his thoughts that when he finally opened his eyes and looked around, he realized he was the only person left in shul. Part of it because he wasn't paying attention. But part of it was because he forgot that the Jews in Germany don't sing and dance like the Hasidim in Poland. And the davening ends very quickly. He thought to himself, Oy vey, what am I going to do now? He was so busy thinking about the beauty of sukkahs and apt that he missed his chance to be invited to somebody's sukkah for a meal and for a place to sleep. And eating in the sukkah is the most important part of the holiday. And he said, Ribbon Allah, master of the world, I didn't want to come to Germany in the first place. I didn't want to have to earn a living. It's all my father's fault. He sent me here. And is it my fault that it was raining and I'm stuck in Leipzig with no friends and no sukkah? And now I have no place to go for a meal? And now he was upset. And he said, Master of the universe, there's nothing I can do about this. If you don't want me to eat in a sukkah, then I won't eat in a sukkah. I will sit here in shul all night. And he leaned back in his seat and closed his eyes. And a few minutes later, he hears somebody come into the shul. He opens his eyes and turns around, and he sees a baker coming in. The baker was covered from head to toe in flour. And Yitzchak Meir watches him walk to the front of the shul, and he's not very impressed with this baker. So he closes his eyes and tries to go back to sleep. But when the baker started davening, he davened so loud that Yitzchak Meir had to sit up. And not only that, couldn't believe what he was hearing. This baker had no clue how to daven. 
even though it was the holiday. He started with the weekday prayers, and he read the service completely out of order and mispronounced almost every word. It sounded so funny to Yitzchak Meir that he could barely hold himself back from laughing. <laughs> and he thought, well, Hashem, you do have a sense of humor. Even if you force me to be in this miserable place for my favorite holiday, at least you sent me an entertaining baker to make me laugh. And when the baker finally finished davening and walks out of the shul, Rebbe Yitzchak Meir says to him, Excuse me, my friend, please, the baker, excuse me. And the baker turns around, he says, I don't live in Leipzig. Do you think I could come home with you and eat in your sukkah? And the baker says, well, I have to warn you. There's a strong wind tonight and my sukkah is not very strong. It's also on the top of my roof. As long as it didn't blow down, I'm happy to have you. But if it did, we both don't have a sukkah. So Yitzchak Meir goes back with the baker to his house. And oi, what a house. It was a rundown shack. The windows were broken. The doors were about to fall off the hinges. The baker starts to walk up towards the roof. And at some point, they see a shaky ladder with every other rung missing. And Yitzchak Meir thinks to himself, this is a matter of life and death, getting up to this sukkah. But they make it up there, and the sukkah is still standing. And Yitzchak Meir thought, if you can call this a sukkah, because it was in pretty bad shape, the wind blew through all the cracks, and it shook with every gust of wind. There were no decorations, just a little three-legged table and some broken stools. And Yitzchak Meir is thinking about his father's sukkah in Poland. How big and elegant and beautiful and holy it is. To think he's the son of the Rebbe and he has to be in a sukkah like this. But he knew he had no choice. It was this or nothing. So he goes in and sits on a shaky stool. He thought it was a miracle it didn't collapse under his weight. And now you know before we start the meal... On Sukkot, we say a special prayer, inviting the seven holy shepherds, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, Yosef, and Melech David, and King David, and of course the Hasidim in our day also invite their rabbis. So on the first night, the special guest is Avraham Avinu, Abraham our father, and the second night is Yitzchak, Avraham's son, and so on throughout the week. And the baker puts a bottle of wine and some challah and some herring on the table. And then he gets up and stands at the entrance of the sukkah. And he wanted to open up his big prayer book to find the prayer to welcome Avram Avinu. But he couldn't find the place. So he just stood there flipping through the pages until finally Reb Meir got up and helped him. And when he points to the place in the sitter, the baker starts to read. But again, every other word he mispronounces and eventually gets frustrated, closes the book. And he says, Holy Avraham Avinu, or Holy Father Avraham, please be my guest in my sukkah tonight. And just then, Yitzchak Meir hears footsteps coming across the roof. And it's another baker covered from head to toe in flour. And he enters into the sukkah, and the baker stands up for this other baker. And he says, Shalom Aleichem, my sweetest friend. Thank you so much for coming. And he turns to Yitzchak Meir and he says, Please, I want you to meet my friend, Avraham the baker. But Yitzchak Meir wasn't paying attention. He was daydreaming about the sukkah and apt, and how he would be sitting next to his holy father, surrounded by holy people, rabbis and scholars, instead of being in an old run-down sukkah on a roof with two dusty bakers. And he said hello to the guests, but that was about it. And the first baker makes Kiddush, and then Hamotzi, the blessing over the bread. 
and they eat a little herring. And then one baker turns to the other, and they whispered to one another all night. And Reb Meir didn't bother even eating the food. He didn't bother listening to the conversation or take part in it, because what were they talking about anyway? Baking methods and the temperature of their oven? All he could think about was his father and the huge, beautiful meal they'd been having in his sukkah, and the beautiful Devei Torah they'd be sharing, and the singing, and the Hasidim. And since there's two days of Yom Tov, Rabbi Yitzchak Meir had no choice but to stay for the next day. And he couldn't sleep all night because the sukkah, every time the wind came, it would shake. And the next morning after davening, they come back to eat the meal, and he's feeling really miserable. And it comes nighttime, and already he knows that the baker can't find the blessing in the Siddur. So Rabbi Yitzchak Meir opens the sitter for him and shows him the right place. And then he goes and sits down on his stool and closes his eyes and tries to fall asleep. And the baker says, once again out of frustration, Master of the universe, can you please send our holy father Yitzchak to come to my humble sukkah? And once again, there were footsteps heard on the roof. And another baker comes into the sukkah, also covered in flour from head to toe. But this baker was so tall, he almost hit his head coming into the sukkah. And the baker says to Yitzchak Meir, Yitzchak Meir, please meet my friend, Yitzchak the baker. And once again, Yitzchak Meir wasn't even there. He was thinking about his father, the table, and the singing, and the joy, and how he just wanted to be home. And on the third night, Yitzchak Meir was really miserable. He was just waiting for the morning when the driver would take him back in time. And he didn't even notice when another baker came in. This one was named Yaakov the baker. He was too busy planning how he would leave at the first light in the morning and go as fast as he could in order to get back to apt by the last day of Sukkot. He said to himself, at least I'll have one day of a real Sukkot. And the next morning, as early as possible, Yitzchak Meir went to his wagon, and the driver drove day and night until, on Hoshana Abba, the last day of the festival, they finally arrived in Apt. And he went straight to his father. And now you know there are some really big Rebbe's, that the minute the Rebbe gave you his hand, suddenly your eyes and ears and your heart and mind were opened and you understood everything in a way that you didn't before. And the Apter Rav was so excited that his son had finally come home. He gave him his hand and he said with a smile, So tell me, Yitzchak Meir, what do you think about the tzaddikim in Germany now? And Yitzchak Meir realizes what had happened. He went back in his mind to the rooftop in Leipzig, to the broken down sukkah with the wind blowing through it, to the three bakers. The three schleppers covered with flour from head to toe. And he realized that they were the holy forefathers themselves. Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. His father didn't send him to Germany for nothing. He sent his son so he could meet the forefathers themselves in person. But because he wasn't in the present and he wasn't able to appreciate what he had at the time, even though he was in the presence of our holy forefathers, he didn't even see them. And the Apterav says to his son, after he saw Yitzchak Meir's eyes light up and then start to tear, he said, so you see Yitzchak Meir, it's possible to sit mamish, literally in a place of the greatest holiness and not even be there. And I bless you, my son, 
that you will reach the level that one day the forefathers will come to you again. And this time, you will understand the ways of the world and the ways of Torah. And you will have the eyes that will be able to see and appreciate what's right in front of your face. My good job is good job is good job is my sweetest friends. Thank you so much for listening. I have to give a special thank you to my sweet son, Levi Yitzchak, who so much loves the podcast. He decided to go to the Shuk in Jerusalem and play music to make money to donate to the podcast. And even though I didn't want to take it from him, he insisted that we use it for buying the Shabbos meals. So I want to thank my son for being the number one listener and supporter. And may he grow up Torah. And tell his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren many Hasidic stories. And of course, I also want to thank his sister, my daughter Eliana, who is also such a loyal listener. And may Hashem bless her as well. And I also want to add a special thanks to Reb Yanke here in Jerusalem for the beautiful contribution that he sent in before the Chag. I really appreciate it and thank you. And thank you to all the listeners and all the supporters for your constant support in every way. May everyone be blessed with a beautiful Yom Tov, Chag Sameach, and to see the forefathers when they come into our sukkah. So as is the custom whenever we get to major holidays, from the recommendation of my friend Eitan, I like to put all the stories that I've told previously related to that holiday. And so I'm going to add all of the stories about Sukkot that are on the podcast following this story. This is a story that the Karlina Rebbe would tell every Sukkot. In a small town, there was a Karlina Chassid who was very poor. He didn't have anything, barely had a home. But every year, when Sukkot came, it was Mamish his holiday. He would build himself a little sukkah out on the road, and with his whole family, they would be celebrating, singing, dancing, playing instruments, all Sukkot. It was just a fantastic holiday for him, a relief from all of his suffering. But across the street was a very wealthy Jew who owned the main factory in town that hired just about everyone in town. And he hated this Karliner Chassid. He hated that the family was so happy because he himself was so miserable. Even though he had everything, his family was always shouting at one another. And the wife and kids didn't respect one another. And they didn't respect their father. And everyone was miserable. And no one was happy. And when somebody is miserable, they can't stand somebody who's happy. So this Karliner Chassid who was across the road from the wealthy man, was really ruining his hog with all of this joy because he wasn't letting him be miserable. How can he be miserable when someone across the street is so happy? And so one year, the wealthy man decided he's going to make sure this Karliner Chassid doesn't have a sukkah. Because, you know, it costs money to build a sukkah. You have to buy the wood and nails, buy the schach or put it together. And this Chassid had a little trick. As everyone was building their sukkahs every year, there would be a little bit of leftover wood, some leftover nails, and he would go around to everyone in the town and say, hey, can I have that piece of wood? Are you using these nails? And everybody knew. 
And so they gave him a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and he would piece together a sukkah. It was just big enough to hold his family, and it was great. Once he had the sukkah, the party came, the joy came, the singing came, and the wealthy man was miserable. So he made an announcement in the factory. Anyone who gives the Karliner chassid any part of their sukkah, whether it's a piece of wood, no matter how rotten it is, whether it's a nail, no matter how rusty it is, will be fired after Sukkot. And so, it was now Erev Sukkot, the day leading into the holiday, and the wealthy man, who had this gigantic sukkah, the size of a football field, with these beautiful oak wood tables and candelabras, everything that you could ever imagine, running water, beautiful dishes, everything in his sukkah. He was looking across the street, and he saw there was no sukkah from the Karliner Chassid. And he said to himself, yes, I finally did it. I got rid of that Chassid's joy. He's not going to have a sukkah this year. And so he sits in his sukkah after the first night of davening, and he's leaning back in his chair thinking, ah, it's so nice and quiet. Nobody's singing or joyous. We can all be miserable together. And what does he hear in the background? He hears the Chassid and his family, and they're making a bracha on the wine, and they're singing, and there's joy, and the rich man, he can't take it. So he runs out of his sukkah, and he runs across the street, and he says to the Karliner, tell me, where did you get the wood from the sukkah? Because whoever gave it to you, they're going to get it from me. They're going to be fired, and they'll never get a job in this town again. The Karliner Chassid, he looks up at the wealthy guy, he says, Shalom Aleichem, my friend, you finally came to join us. Come, sit down, let's say a l'chaim. Let's sing a little bit together. The wealthy man says, I don't want to talk about singing or l'chaims. I want to know, where did you get this wood? Well, I'll be happy to tell you. Just come sit down. Let's talk about it. So the wealthy man, he comes in, and he sits on one of the broken chairs in the chassid sukkah. And the karliner chassid says to the wealthy man, let me tell you what happened. You know, every year I go around and I get scraps of wood and rusty nails from people. And I went over to Moishele and I said, Moishele, you have some wood for me? And he said, I'm really sorry, but I don't have any wood left. We used everything. And the Karliner Chassid said, well, what about a couple of nails? Anything? Something that was bent or didn't work out? He said, no, we don't have any leftovers. I went to Shleimele. I went to Shmirel. I went to everyone. And nobody had any leftovers for me. And I didn't understand what was going on here. Finally, somebody said to me, hey, you know what? We're not allowed to give you because the wealthy man's going to fire us if we give you anything. And I thought to myself, oh no, what am I going to do? It's now getting to be late in the afternoon, and I'm walking around town trying to figure out how am I going to build a sukkah. And who do I run into? The angel of death. Malach HaMavit. I see the angel of death. And I say, angel of death, Shalom Aleichem. What are you doing in our humble town? And he said, ah, I just have one more job to do before Sukkot starts. And I said to him, really? Who's going to die in our town? One more pickup? And he says, ah, you wouldn't believe it. And the Karliner Chassid says to the wealthy man, you wouldn't believe who his last pickup was, staring right into his eyes. Angel of Death said he was coming for you. And I told the Angel of Death, listen, brother, that guy, he's already dead. You don't even need to bother. He's so sad and depressed all the time. I think death would be better than his life. You don't need to bother him. The Angel of Death said, really, he's that sad? And I said, yeah. He's really that sad. Well, I guess if he's that sad and depressed, I don't really have to bother. Thanks for saving me the work. And now the angel of death was about to leave. And I said to him, hey, can you do me a favor? And the angel of death says, sure. He said, listen, 
I really need a sukkah for the holiday. Do you have any ideas of what I can do? And he said, well, you know what? I'm not scheduled to be back here until after Sukkot. So why don't you go to the, where the Hever Kadisha has the wooden stakes, where they put Ponitman, here lies somebody who died, and you can build your sukkah from that. So he said to the wealthy man, look around my sukkah here. And the wealthy man looks around and sees that all of the wooden planks in the sukkah have a pei nun, that's for Ponitman, here lies, where they would put the name of the person who passed away. He said, so you see, since the angel of death said nobody's going to die, I was able to take this wood from the cemetery. And the wealthy man, it really shook him to his core. And he started crying. And he said to the chassid, what am I supposed to do? I have this sadness in my heart. I'm always angry and upset. Tell me, I have everything, but I have no joy. And you, who really has nothing, you're happy all the time. Where do you get all this joy from? The chassid said, Ah, if you want to be joyous, you have to come to my Rebbe, the Karlina Rebbe, and then you can learn what true simcha, what true joy is. And so the wealthy man went to Karlin with the Chassid, and even though he was always full of anger and sadness, over time he became one of the greatest Karliner Chassidim, and he had no problem connecting with the joy in his heart. You know, sometimes, my sweetest friends, we just need somebody to light a little spark inside of us. And for this wealthy man, who eventually became such a big Karliner Chassid, it was the little poor Karliner Chassid across the street who did it for him through his singing, through his dancing, and never giving up. Because even though nobody wanted to help him, by remaining an optimist and davening and having a muna, even the angel of death came to help this chassid build his sukkah. Good yantiv, my sweetest friends, good yantiv. my sweetest friends. So we're now in the midst of the great holidays of Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur have already passed, and now we're heading into the holiday of Sukkot, Sukkot. And so I'm going to share with you a story that was told by the late Rabbi Avraham Tversky, who of course, I'm sure you know, was from a long line of Hasidic masters, including of course his father, and the Aptarav, who he was named after, Rabbi Avraham Yoshua Heschel. And occasionally, Rabbi Tversky's father, on Friday night, would say Kaddish. And when his children asked him who he was saying Kaddish for, he told the following story. The Aptarav, from which the Tversky family descended, was the rabbi of the community in Apt in Poland. And as was the custom in those days, the community was too poor to pay the rabbi a salary. So what they did is gave him a monopoly, exclusive rights to the sale of something that everyone in the community needed. 
which was yeast, so that they could bake their challahs and cakes, the Kavad Shabbos Kodesh. And so the only person in town that was allowed to sell yeast in the Jewish community was the rabbi, and everyone was obligated to buy their yeast from the rabbi. Now, the yeast didn't sell for very much, and it just made a meager living for the rabbi and his family, and they struggled to make ends meet. In one year, as the holiday of Sukkot was coming, the Abderav saw that he didn't have enough money to buy any food for the holiday. Not candles, and certainly not an etrog, and a lulav. And my sweetest friends, sometimes I know what it is to be in that situation. So I can understand the frustration of the Abderav. And he said to his wife, Listen, Please, Hashem, don't make us ask for not from money, from our fellow humans, and not for taking a loan. But rather, directly from you, Hashem, from your open, outstretched, broad hand, that we won't be embarrassed, ever, but the money will come directly from you, Hashem. So the Aptarov says to his wife, no borrowing money, and no asking for tzedakah. Whatever Hashem gave us, that's what we'll have and we'll make do. And so the Rebbe left to go to shul, sit and learn, daven, say Tehillim, and ask Hashem to help. And shortly after the Rebbe left, a stranger came and knocked on the door. He says to the Rebbetzin that he's a merchant and that he's traveling from town to town and that he saw that he won't be able to reach his hometown by the time the holiday of Sukkot starts. So would he be able to spend the Yom Tov here with the rabbi of the town? He also said that he was carrying a large sum of money from his business dealings, and he figured the rabbi's house is probably the safest place that he could think of. So he asked the Rebbetzin, so can I stay here with you for Yom Tov? And she says, yes, of course, we would be happy to host you. We only have one problem, we don't have any money. And if we don't have any food, we'll be okay. But we can't ask a guest like you to come and eat nothing with us, so I'm really sorry. And the merchant says, oh, that's not a problem. He takes out a large bill of money from his purse. Hands it to the rabbits and he says, it's still early in the day. There's plenty of time for you to buy everything you need for Yom Tov. Then he takes out another bill and gives it to him and he says, here, buy everything you need. Don't hold back and if you need more money, just come to me. I'm just looking for a place where I can spend Yom Tov, and rest in peace and not have to worry about anything. And the merchant said to the wife, I'm assuming that if you didn't have any money for food, you also don't have any money for buying a lulav and esrog. So I'll take care of it for your husband. And he goes and buys the finest lulav and esrog that he can find in the market. So the Rebbitson took the money. It wasn't a loan, and it wasn't tzedakah. It was the merchant wanting her to do a service for him, provide hosting and meals. So she went to the market, and she bought all the food that she needed. And that night after davening, the Rebbe was in no rush to get back home. He sat and learned some more, said some to him. And when he finally came back home and saw that there were candles burning in a sukkah, and he could smell the food, he got a little angry. And he walked in the sukkah, and he says to his wife, what did I tell you? No borrowing money and no tzedakah. And he didn't even notice the merchant was sitting there. And the wife simply points to the merchant and he waves at the Rebbe. He says, Shalom Aleichem, Rabbi. I'm so grateful to be here in your sukkah. I was just traveling around, doing my business, and I realized I wouldn't be able to make it home in time for Yom Tov. And your Rebbetzin was so kind. She offered to let me stay here and to cook the foods for me. And I gave her all the money that she needed. And then he showed the Rebbe the beautiful lulav and esrog that he had bought for him. And the Rebbe was besides himself. And he said, well, truly Hashem has provided for us. And he went over to the stranger, the merchant, gave him a big hug, said, thank you so much. You have no idea what this means to me. 
And the two of them danced in the sukkah. And then they started the meal. And as soon as the meal began, the merchant who was sitting next to the Rebbe had a long table full of many chairs. The Rebbe said to him, Would you mind moving over one seat? So the merchant says, Sure, no problem, Rebbe. Gets up, moves to the next seat. And a minute or so later, he says to the merchant, I'm so sorry to bother you. Would you mind moving down one more seat? So he gets up and moves to the next seat. This goes on until eventually the merchant was seated at the other end of this very long table in the sukkah. But there was no one else there. It was just the Rebbe, his Rebbitzin, and the merchant. So the merchant says to the Rebbe, Rebbe, I'm happy to move down to the other end of the table. Maybe I don't deserve to be next to a great tzaddik like you, but we're the only ones in the sukkah. Why are you pushing me to the other end of the table? Would it bother you so much that I sit next to you? And the Rebbe gets up, and he kisses the man on his forehead, and he says, My dear child, don't think that way. You're very precious to me, and only Hashem can reward you for what you've done for me and my wife. But how can you say that there's no one else here in the sukkah? Don't you know that the Avot, the patriarchs, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, Yosef, and David, they visit the sukkah? And where were they supposed to sit? Please forgive me, I had to make room for them. That's why I asked you to move down. The merchant's eyes opened up really big. And he said, You mean to tell me that they actually came to the sukkah? It's not just an imaginary thing? And the Rebbe just smiled. The merchant got up and kissed the Rebbe's hands and gave him a hug. He said, Thank you, Rebbe, for hosting me in your sukkah. And the next night, the merchant, he didn't even wait to be asked. He immediately and joyfully took his place at the end of the table. And at the end of the meal, the merchant went over to the Rebbe and he said, Rebbe, it is a great tzchut, a great merit, a privilege to share the sukkah with a tzaddik like you and the patriarchs. But Rebbe, I'd like to actually see them and not just imagine that they're here. The Avtarav, he shook his head. He said, no, my child, this would be too intense for your soul to be contained within your body. You simply couldn't handle it. And I can see that you have many more years to live. I'm sorry, I can't allow that. And the next day, the merchant came to the sukkah. He says to the Rebbe, Rebbe, I've given it a great deal of thought, and I'm already 60 years old. Maybe I'll live another 10 years, 15 years. I don't have any children. I never married. And it would mean so much to me, Rebbe, if I could see the patriarchs. What a schut. What an honor. If I could just see them. And the Rebbe tried to dissuade him. He said, no, it's not your time yet. But the merchant was adamant. And so that night, the merchant sat at the end of the table, and he married it to see each of the avot, each of the patriarchs, come in one after the other, and sit down at the Rebbe's table in the sukkah. And can you imagine, my sweetest friends, to actually be able to see the avot sitting in your sukkah? The next morning, the merchant wasn't feeling well. He couldn't get out of bed. And the Rebbe came and sat at his bedside. And the merchant said, Rebbe, I can feel my energies leaving me. And I know I'm going to leave this world. But believe me, Rebbe, I have no regrets. To see the Havot was worth a dozen more years. I would happily do it again. It was worth everything. But I only have one regret, Rebbe. I never had any children. And now that I'm going to leave this world, who's going to say Kaddish for me? And the Rebbe said to him, I will say Kaddish for you, my sweetest friend. You have nothing to worry about. I promise you, I will say Kaddish for you. But the merchant said, Rebbe, you're also just a human being, flesh and blood, just like me. And after you leave this world, I'll be completely forgotten, and no one will remember my yard site. And the Rebbe thought for a moment, and he said, I'm going to leave instructions in my will. 
that my descendants will say Kaddish on Friday night in your memory. And so Rabbi Tversky's father said that he would say Kaddish on Friday nights in the memory of the merchant who merited both the privilege of providing for the Apterav, the food for the holiday in his Lulav and Esrug, and also had the merit to see the ancestors of the Jewish nation. May we all be blessed to see the patriarchs and all the holy rebbies and still stay in this world in good health and serve Hashem B'Simcha. Amen! Amen, brother! Everybody who's been to the old city of Jerusalem knows that before there were water pipes and irrigation, the residents of Jerusalem received all their water from large cisterns that were dug in and around the old city. The way it worked is the winter rains would come, fill the cisterns, and then people would have water to live off of until the next winter came. It was in the early years of the 1600s when the Ottomans were ruling over the land of Israel, and there was a serious drought All the winter months came and went, and it didn't rain. The days kept passing, no rain, just beautiful, clear skies. Well, it wasn't so beautiful when you needed water. The earth was drying up and starting to crack. Gardens and fields were no longer producing any vegetables and fruits, and the water level in the cisterns was dropping very quickly. As winter was coming to an end, Nobody in the city could remember a year quite like this. And everyone knows that in the old city, there's different populations, Jews, Muslims, Christians, Armenians, and they were all worried together. They looked at the famine that was coming, starvation, lack of water, and everyone went into their shuls and their churches and their mosques, and everyone prayed to God that it should rain. The rabbis of Jerusalem declared a special fast day, three days of fasting, Special prayers. Hundreds of Jews went to the kever of Rachel Imenu, the tomb of Rachel, our matriarch. They davened there, they davened by King David, they davened on Harzion, but it didn't rain. And at this point, the population had used up almost all the water. Everyone looked at the sky. No rain was coming. We were heading towards spring, and nobody knew what to do. Some of the different groups in the old city started blaming each other, and eventually, they all started blaming the Jews. It didn't take much explanation why the Jewish community was being blamed. Just everyone decided, well, it must be the Jews. And eventually, it reached the place of the governor of the district of Jerusalem, 
and he summoned the famous scholar in Mekubal, Rabbi Moshe Galante, who had moved from Tzfat around 1655 and was now one of the leading rabbis in Jerusalem. The rabbi came in to see the Pasha, and the Pasha said to him, I know that it's because of you Jews that God, Allah, has not let it rain in Jerusalem. You say that you're God's chosen people? You call him father and you call yourselves children, and so it's your fault that it hasn't rained. And I'm warning you that if your prayers don't come through after three days, I'm going to kick out all the Jews from Jerusalem. So Rabbi Galante went back to the Jewish community and he said, listen, everybody, we have to take this very seriously. He told everyone what the Pasha, what the government had said. It wasn't enough that they didn't have water and that they were fasting. Now they might get kicked out of Jerusalem. People were kind of depressed. They didn't really know what to do. And they all came together. They stood at the Kotel, the Western Wall. They begged Hashem to have compassion on the Jewish people and everybody in the land of Israel. The first day passed and the second. And when the third day came, nothing had changed. The skies were still blue, not a single cloud in the sky. Everyone got together again, hungry and thirsty, fasting, begging Hashem for compassion. And as the day was coming towards an end, Rabbi Galante announced that everyone should go home and get their raincoats, umbrellas, and their special rain boots. So everyone was quite surprised. They looked at one another. But the rabbi said to do it, so they did. They came back to the shul, umbrellas, raincoats, and boots in hand. And he said, we're going outside the walls of the old city to the tomb of Shimon HaTzadik, the great sage and high priest from the early years of the Second Temple. So everybody followed. And as they're leaving the city... The chief of police saw this parade of Jews with their umbrellas and their galoshes, their raincoats, and he heard that they were marching to the grave of Shimon Tzadik, and he got so angry. He went over to Rabbi Galante, slapped him in the face. He said, the people of this city are suffering so much, and you're making a mockery. You're laughing at us with these umbrellas and this parade. He was so angry at the rabbi. The rabbi ignored him. Just continued walking until they got to the grave of Shimon Tzadik. The rabbi went inside and laid down on the kever on the tombstone and started crying. And eventually he fell asleep and everyone knew not to bother him. They continued saying to Hillem and davening to Hashem. And all of a sudden they felt a little breeze. It was like a soft, gentle wind. And then it started to pick up. And then it became a serious wind. And then they looked up at the sky and they saw great clouds. They were clearly rain clouds. And then there was one drop and then another and a little drizzle. And after that, it started pouring rain. Of course, the Jews came with their raincoats and their umbrellas, so they opened the umbrellas. And in no time, they were in the midst of a huge rainstorm. Everyone went to the nearby houses and trees to get shelter. And in the distance, they saw somebody running as fast as he could towards them, his boots in the mud. Water flying as he ran through the streets to get to Rabbi Galante, who was now awake and laughing in the rain. It was the chief of police. He threw himself down in the mud at the rabbi's feet. He said, Rabbi, please forgive me. I'm so sorry how I insulted you. Didn't realize you were such a great and holy person. 
He didn't feel like the rabbi really got it. So the chief of police picked up the rabbi and put him on his shoulders and started marching with him with all the Jews coming back into town with their umbrellas and their boots and their raincoats. And the chief of police carried Rabbi Galante on his shoulders all the way to the door of his house. The rainstorm continued all night, and by the morning, all of the cisterns were overflowing with water. Later that day, the Pasha came himself and apologized for threatening to expel the Jews. He thanked the rabbi, and he said, Now I know that your God is a real God, and that you Jews are really God's chosen people. In the davening, we say, which literally means that Hashem makes the wind blow and brings the rains. But another way of interpreting it is that when you stir up the spiritual passion and energy, you can bring down physical abundance. And that's what the Jews in our story did. They davened, and through their davening, Hashem was able to send them the blessings. May we be blessed with a good and sweet year, rains that heal and not rains that harm, and have bounty and plenty for the whole Jewish people, the land of Israel, and the whole world. If you made it this far, my sweetest friends, you are truly loyal listeners of this podcast. And I want to bless you and your families with the sweetest holiday. So I won't be putting out an episode next week because it's Cholom Wed Sukkot. But the week after, Bezat Hashem, Hashem will give me the strength and the time to put out yet another episode. So until then, my sweetest friends, take care of yourselves. Have a beautiful holiday. And if you're listening on YouTube, make sure to leave me a comment. And thank you so much, my friends. Sei gesund.